And uh, as we get started, just, I, I know Ryder mentioned it before, but I literally walked in here last night and I saw the verdant explosion of creation all around the room in this immersive, stunning masterpiece that our uh, set design team, our programming team has put together. Can you just give them another round of applause for the hard work they put into this? I, I literally, I, I mean, I feel like bringing a chainsaw in, you know, to see what, and then, uh, and then I'm like, no, the time, the effort, the energy, let's, uh, let's not do that. You guys, uh, you know me. Well, some of you know me. My name is Ryan. For those of you who don't um, know me, I'm one of the teaching team pastors here. And it is such a privilege to be in the second week of Genesis. If you're joining us, buckle up. This is going to be epic, which is what Genesis is supposed to be, right, church? It is the beginning tale. And I'm realizing as I stand up here, I'm not going to be able to get up in your groove the way I normally do because I'm blocked back. So if I knock something off, that's just what's going to happen. I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, I actually want to start tonight um, letting you know that last week, Jason broke down the component parts of creation in essence uh, so that God could answer out of the very first four verses of the first chapter of all the Bible that God could answer who he is for us. If you missed last week, you want to get online, you want to watch that message, you want to take that apart. It is foundational to our faith. And I don't care whether you've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for the last five minutes, we need foundational understanding of our faith so that we can grow with the strength of an increasing foundation. Amen, church? It is crucial for us as followers of Jesus that we get this stuff. And I, I want to start tonight with a story of a moment of several years uh, back with me. We went um, to northern Minnesota, my family and I. We'd never been to northern Minnesota before. Had any, anyone else been to northern Minnesota before? Let me tell you something about northern Minnesota. It is stunningly beautiful and it is cold. <laughs> like, like we're from Michigan, so we think we know cold. You, you, you guys, we, we don't know cold, okay? Minnesota is cold, and we went to Minnesota, and um, we went with some friends here that have uh, uh, a family cabin, they have access to this family cabin, and it is on a lake in northern Minnesota. It's stunningly beautiful. Uh, the rocks in the water are in a pristine condition that truly, I mean, when I was there, the, the majesty and the grandeur of our creator God is all around, right? Well, I went with these friends and I, I can't name names because again, they're local. I don't want this story to necessarily reach back to places that could incriminate me later. Um, but here's the deal. We got there and we weren't there very long and my friend said to me, hey, I may have hoodwinked you a little bit asking you to come up here. And I was like, 
don't love that. I thought we were friends, right? I thought you asked me to come up here just because we're friends. Oh no, you need something from me. Okay, all right, what do you need? And he actually proceeded to un, uh, um, sort of unwind a tale for me of a friend of his, a very successful businessman, an older man, who um, was part of the church when he was younger, very young. He's now in his 60s. We're going to call him DB for the purpose of our story. And DB um, had been abused in the church when he was a little boy. And then he had left that particular church, gotten into some other churches as he got older, and was again and again uh, let down and disappointed and hurt by different scenarios that he had experienced. So there was inside of him sort of an idea of who Jesus was. There was a desire to follow Jesus. There was some hope in the salvation that the Son of God provides. There was so much of the rest of his life that had been damaged and hurt that there were barriers between him and God. And so this friend of mine, and, and I ended up just being like, you are awesome. You're awesome. He had asked me up in part to see if he could hoodwink his other friend into a clandestine meeting down on the shore in a boat. And he said, I've been working on him for years. Just trying to drip truth. Just trying to help him understand. But Ryan, I'm, you know, I'm not all that sure sometimes about the story of my own faith and I, I don't know parts of the Bible. So I thought if I could get him with you for five minutes, it would change his life. <laughs> and, and you know what I thought? Lord Jesus, you better show up. <laughs> I really thought that. And for two days, we talked back and forth with texting and, and, um, on Sunday morning, his friend DB agreed to meet for coffee down on the lake's edge in a boat and to ask me some hard questions about life. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, church. I didn't know what the questions were going to be. And we got down to the boat. And he opened his mouth, he started talking. And I saw the image of God in a man who longed to know his creator more deeply, who longed to understand who Jesus was more closely, but he didn't know he'd, he'd had cancer. His wife had almost died. He'd been through a messy divorce. He had grandkids. He wanted to be able to leave a legacy to, but he didn't know how. So he starts asking me questions and we talked. And as I prayed, church, I kid you not, in the most, one of the most audible voices I've ever had with the Lord, he said to me, I want you to tell him the story of creation. I want you to tell him how I shaped and I formed and I made and I crafted. And I loved every minute of it. And I, and I shouted over him as I shaped and I formed him. And so I started talking. 
I started telling the story. I started just opening up my soul about how God gave him the image, the image, his image. I want to read you a letter I got just a little while ago from him. I don't do this very often. Sometimes when you guys send me stuff, I don't read it, but this was really a good one, so I read it. (laughs) Thank you. I've been telling Sue and my children about our discussion and how good it was to have met you. My 24-year-old granddaughter, Natalie, visited after you left, and it was such a pleasure talking to her about God's creations. We sat on the deck together, under the stars, in a clear sky, and she listened intently while I talked about my unorganized thoughts of church and God's handiwork in the nature surrounding us. She was a little surprised that Grandpa wasn't talking about boats and cabins and fine adult beverages. Nothing wrong with talking about those things, by the way. Politics or island work projects. Instead, we absorbed the setting and talked about the Holy Spirit and how the cosmos came about. According to a young man I'd recently met who loved to tell about it. I love that he called me young. (laughs) Natalie had never paid much attention to the skies and the Milky Way. And the Milky Way was as clear as a bell, which made a great tool for Grandpa. She could kind of see it, but it's milky, you know. I got out the binoculars and asked her to look again. From the blur, that little bit of magnification changed the view dramatically, much like you changed my view. Church, you are made in the image of God. And we're going to unpack that. But never forget as we unpack it, how critically important it is that you have the capacity to tell the story of your creator when people around you are dying for it. Genesis 1, 26, 27 reads this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And this next part is actually the first poem in all of the scriptures. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, theologians have written hundreds, perhaps thousands of volumes debating the meaning for centuries of this idea. And they've come up with tens of thousands of insights derived from this part of God's story, this image of God, this imago dei. In short, mankind being made in the image of God informs nearly every other teaching about life and faith in all the word of God and is one of the most central and essential teachings of the Bible from God's own lips to us. 
to an extent, and here's the beginning of the problem, to an extent, many of us who follow Jesus have at least a vague notion that human beings are created in the image of God, and we think we believe it, but there's a, there's a long uh, sight between thinking we believe it and believing it, church. Now, most of us have little to no idea of what that means and why it matters. So here's the big problem, and it is a big problem. If we don't understand what the image of God means or why it matters, then we're susceptible, listen to me, to the deceptions, the confusions, and attacks on the value of life and the real worth of the human being, the real worth according to what God says about who we are. When we don't know or understand this teaching, we are subject to being told who we are and what our purpose is by the culture around us instead of the God who made us. And this often wreaks devastating circumstances in our life. Our ignorance and lack of belief leads to all manner of mess and confusion in our lives. And just to bring it home to you, this is what I mean by that. Fear, insecurity, depression, Suspicion, futility, slander, emptiness, discord, brokenness, hurt, and hatred, and worse. And every one of you in here has either been the victim of one of these things or you have been the perpetrator of one of these things. Largely because we are not walking around with a construct on understanding a belief that we human beings are created in God's image. So I'm gonna, we're going to unpack this, okay? What's an image? What's an image? You know, I think we probably are one of the most uh, confused societies in the world has ever seen as to what an image is. Yeah. Because we use them so much, we're not sure whether they're real or digital. But look at this. Even our society, modern society, look at what we've done with images as we unpack the word, okay? The first one I wanna show you here is of Mount Rushmore. My family visited this one. Check this out. Now, the purpose to our society, to our culture, the purpose of Mount Rushmore as a memorial is to communicate the founding, the expansion, the preservation, and the unification of the United States with a colossal status of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. The length of time to build this out of stone using dynamite, pick, axes and chisels was 14 years. So if you don't think that our society will invest in modern images, check again. Notice also Washington communicates the founding, Jefferson communicates the expansion, uh, and um, Roosevelt communicates the preservation, and Lincoln the unification. I didn't learn that until I took my family out there, so I thought that's just free for you tonight. Okay. <laughs> 
Let's go to the next one. The next one is Crazy Horse. Not 20 miles from the location of Mount Rushmore, the Native American people for 70 years have been working all on private donations and dollars to memorialize one of their leaders. The purpose of Crazy Horse Monument is to stand in honor of the lives of the Native leaders who fought against oppression and systematic extermination and rode free and wild. When it's done, and it's still not done. Crazy Horse will be mounted on a horse literally hewn out of the side of a mountain. 70 years they've been working on this. Let's move to the next one. The next one is the Lincoln Memorial. Read the actual inscription if you can. In this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. Our modern usage of images. The purpose of this memorial or temple is the preservation and even veneration enshrined forever of the memory of one of our favorite heroes and what he stood for. Unity of the states under one federation. Length of time to build, eight years. The next is of course the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. The purpose of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial is to honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and the struggle for freedom, equality, and justice, length of time to build two years. And the last is the Statue of Liberty, of course. The purpose of the Statue of Liberty is to remind us of the importance of enlightenment, the torch to provide freedom and opportunity for all. Length of time to build, nine years and four months to rebuild once it was shipped here from France. Now listen, these are modern day images. That's where I want to start in understanding the idea of an image. But ancient peoples had an even more deep, deeply connected relationship to their images. In the context, listen to me, the context of the Hebrew people, when God gave the creation narrative to Moses, Jason talked about it last week, they're up, they're on the mountain, and God is communicating what and how he created and why he created to Moses. In that context, when God communicated, there was an even more specific and exclusive use for an image. Hear this. The, the ancient Hebrew word for image is Salem. Salem. And Salem is interchangeable with idol. An image in a temple and an idol. Where's God going with this? To the ancient people, every temple had an image in it of the God and the temple um, that, that the worshipers came and they could see that God and that God could be present and in that, in that uh, embodiment or in this, vent, um, this idea that that image was actually imbued with the presence of that deity, whatever that deity was, would give the worshipers or the sacrificers an idea at least that that deity was present, perhaps an awe or a worship of that deity. This is the construct of the people around Israel. This would also have been how Israel understood the idea of an image. Now follow me. At the same time, kings, emperors, and pharaohs would often want to get in on a little bit of the God action. 
as you can imagine. And so they would have their image sculpted or carved and they would place it in prominent places, sometimes in the temple or the palaces, in the expectation that the people would treat them as a god, believe they were ever present, and would listen to what they said. These are the two ways images were used. Look at this. This is a image of the Sphinx. Still stands today. Pharaoh in all their power the sun god who gave all of his power according to their legend to the pharaoh so the pharaoh would make the image of him and the people would be afraid of his power. Now look at this. In the end, both modern, our day and age, and ancient uses of an image hasn't really changed that much if you think about it. These monuments and sculptures and images are used to memorialize and represent and remind us of an idea or a powerful person. But God communicates a different idea of his creation and his image through his conversation with Moses uh, in Genesis. Listen to this. First, that he created the world, Jason talked about last week, the earth, the temple, the idea of temple, And second, that he put into this temple a physical image of himself with a spirit. So this being is animated. This being is alive. This being has received the ruah of life. And because this being has received the ruah of life, it's literally the representation on earth of God's presence in everything that we do and say. That's powerful, church. And here's why. So that creation could appropriately worship him through that image. That they could see God through us and therefore worship and glorify who God was through uh, his image. And the second is so that the power and the love and the stewardship and the sovereignty of God can be expressed in the world through his likeness and through his image. This is what this means. Humans, Adam and Eve, you and I are his living image and inspirited representatives created to actively demonstrate and proclaim his lordship and his glory as his caretakers, stewards, and rulers over all creation. Here's the main point, church. This is the main point of being God's image to the world. It is to carry his likeness into everything we do in the world. The way we think, talk, act, feel is to look like God so that the world around us may see him and may draw near to him and may actually worship him with their lives. That is the image of God given to you. All the other things, is it our rational mind? Is it our emotional existence? Is it all the things theologians have debated? I I really want to just boil it down to it's all of that and none of it, we carry his image. We literally are his image to the world. So these implications are threefold. And these are the macro ones, okay? That we're gonna dig into a little bit. There's 
there are, there are literally tens of thousands. This was the challenge for me this week. It was like trying to pick up a basketball, only I, my hand isn't big enough to palm a basketball. You know what I'm saying? It's too big. There's nothing to grab a hold of. It felt massive. And the reality is that is how deeply important the image of God is woven through all of his story to us. We're going to look at three parts. We're going to look at value. What does the image of God communicate as value? What is the identity? And I'm going to stay, I'm going to keep my comments and my thoughts on identity to our physical and our sexual identity. There is much further we could go with that, but tonight we're only going to hit that. And then finally purpose. So here's number one value. Here's the question and you hear it more than ever before. Do I matter? Because if you look up suicide rates in teens, you'll be stunned, horrified, mortified. Because we're losing, we're losing this battle in answering this question. Do I matter? I want to be a church that's storytellers who can answer that question for the next generation so they realize how important they are. I want you to be able to enter into conversations explaining how precious and valuable their life is. First is just this, we belong to him, is, is what this passage communicates to us. Made in the image of God, that he created us in his image, that we literally look like him to the world. That communicates the belonging of child to parent. As a child who is like their parent. In fact, if you fast forward to Genesis chapter five and you just read the first couple of verses, it says that as Adam was created in the image of God, Adam bore a son, Seth, and his son, Seth, carried Adam's image forward. We're literally given the idea that this image is the likeness of parent to child. That's the kind of belonging that God wants to communicate through this. And I gotta tell you, when my kids were born, I was truly surprised. This, this shocked me to discover how insecure I got when everybody around me started asking the question, well, who do they look like? I didn't think I'd care. I cared. I wanted every one of my kids to look like me and nobody else. And then they came out covered in vernix and I didn't even want to touch them. That's a little aside for you. They don't look anything like you initially. But they do. They carry our likeness. They, they are in our likeness as our kids. And there is something innately precious and special about that that we pick up in the first moments of their life. The second is he desires us. 
Look at, he says, Adam, I want you here. We've talked about hunger this year. We've talked about how we hunger for God. I want you to know our hunger for God is rooted in his desire for us. He chose us. He did not need us. He, per, he is perfectly, um, he's perfectly complete inside the Trinity. He doesn't need anything. His desire to create mankind as he did came out of the overflow of his love, a desire for relationship, a longing for relationship with us. And that means he chose us, church. This creature I'm going to give. If, if you're still wondering, go to verse 31 of the first chapter. After God creates both Adam and Eve, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Now what you need to understand is over every other proclamation, every other day, every other thing that he had created, God said, it's good. And that good is a resounding statement. It's a, it's, it is a, it's a statement of this creation is the way it should be. But when he creates Adam and Eve, he literally says, it is very good. This creation, this one right here, I have outdone myself with this one. This one looks like me. It's going to talk like me. It's going to walk like me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bear my image. This one right here, I am ecstatic and elated about this one. That's you. That's you. You are very good, he says. Now, the whole doctrine of sin comes into things. That's in chapter three. We're not there yet. Right now, you're very good, is what he is saying. In the, in the way that he crafted, in the way that he intimately knew you, he's blowing the, the top off the sky. He's calling the, inf the, 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 the universe that is still expanding, that he just created, he's calling all attention to say, look what I have created here. If, if you read the whole two chapters, you'll find... You'll find God does two other things that are absolutely astonishing that he does not do for any other creation. One, he gets down in the dirt. He makes dirt into a shape. It's this idea that he actually took his hands and he, and he touched where before he never touched. Remember, everything else he created by the power of the resounding boom of his voice and the incredible luminosity of his light, clashing those together he creates, but not us. He, he gets in the dirt. He starts shaping and forming. And he's kind of pushing the, the little cherubim and seraphim. Get away. I don't want you messing this one up. And he's, he's, he's intimate in his creation of us. Every part is done with intimacy and care and concern. And, and then he doesn't stop there. He, he reaches down and he wraps his lips around Adam's mouth and he blows into Adam his own spirit. It's called the Ruah of life. To bring this inert mass to life 
will require my spirit. Here, I give you life. There's a couple of things I want to just read. Not, not a lot, but it just shocked me this week. I got on the topic of the amazing human body. Did you know our body replaces around 330 billion cells per day? Bet you didn't. At that rate, your body is making over 3.8 million new cells every second. In one day, your heart produces enough energy to power a truck for 20 miles. I bet mine does more. <laughs> After being created inside the bones, red blood cells make approximately 250,000 round trips at 60,000 miles each trip through the body before returning to the bone marrow to die 120 days later. The human liver is responsible for more than 500 distinct processes in the body. If over half of the liver is removed as a result of trauma or surgery, it will grow back to its original size in approximately six weeks. Y'all get impressed when a worm grows a new part of itself. Your liver can double its size in six weeks. The human eye can distinguish up to a million different colors and has over 2,000 working parts. I'm sorry, 2 million working parts. Around the fifth month of pregnancy, a baby's eyelid will go from one covering to two lids by growing a sort of razor edge on the eye to cut the eyelid in half. After the eyelid separates, this sharp edge absorbs back into the eye. During the first month of life, an infant is learning so many new things that the number of connections called synapses between the brain cells increases from 50 trillion to one quadrillion. Our debt, our national debt's not even that big. <laughs> By comparison, if the rest of the infant's body responded with equally rapid growth, she'd weigh 170 pounds by the time she was a month old. Now listen to this. The brain possesses a fascinating ability called neuroplasticity. This was the one that more than anything else blew me away. It's brain plasticity and it is the ability to modify its connections thereby rewiring and reshaping itself. That's really good news for those of us that are working on transformation. God got done. He got done with Adam and Eve. There's a whole lot more detail. He got done. He stood, he stood back and said, check me out for what I made. And you know what all of heaven did? You know what every celestial body did? They praised his majestic name for what he had made. Because we are designed to shine glory unto God, to point people to him, to point creation to him. I, I, I know a little bit about this and I wanna, we'll leave this in just a second, but I, I wanna say this. As a dad, when my kids 
do something. Probably, maybe not even that impressive. But like last week, my son Garrett is playing JV football. It's been a rough season. He, he has endured. He, he has prevailed. I am so proud of him. And there's this one play. He's out on the wing. The running back gets the ball. This kid he's been up against all night has just been shoving him all over the field to the point that I literally have to throttle myself, right? Like, just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. Don't say anything. And, and Garrett, Garrett just went up against this kid. The running back's coming. And he knew this was it. And he hit that kid so hard, he woke up two days later. I mean, he flattened him. And I was like, whoa, that is my boy. My daughter, she can dance in a way that is the grace and beauty. It's breathtaking. It's stunning. It's a gift from God. And when I see her doing that, I just think, that's my girl. That's my girl. Psalm Psalms 8, 3 through 6 says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care about him? Essentially, the psalmist is saying, after all that and all that and all that that Jason talked about last week, all of it, astonishing. What is man that you would be mindful of us, God? Listen to what he says. You have made him a little lower than God, a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And we'll talk about that in just a second uh, when we get to purpose. But these statements here communicate that we are literally of penultimate value, not ultimate value, but second only to God is how he created us. Ultimate, the ultimate worth giver ourselves. You are created in the image of God. And to those of you who feel insecure or stupid or worthless or not enough or unwanted or uncared for, listen, you carry in your makeup nothing short of the breathtaking, intelligent, brilliant, perfect, claimed, cared for, and crafted likeness of God himself. That is what he thinks about you. He loves you. What, what more do we need than that? But he loves you and me. He loves us. Beyond anything else, no, very good. Right here. The take home is this. Every human life is sacred. Everyone. It's set apart. It's precious. And I don't care that the effect of sin, broken choices and sinful decisions, they should never supersede God's act of giving life and calling it good. He looked and he saw and he said, it is very good. God is for life from the womb to the tomb. And our church will be for life just as he is from the womb to the tomb.
And then our second is identity. And this is such a hard one. And I said this earlier, I'm going to keep my comments to our sexual identity because that is the passage that we are in. Here it is again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Also, in verse 26, the noun image is masculine. The noun likeness is feminine. That's really important. God had a design and it included two male and female sexes. Specifically in the area of human sexuality, our sexual and bodily being is a physical way. Remember that image. It is a physical way that we are supposed to image God. I've said this before, but hear me. We don't just have a body, we are a body. I'm not sure how all that works in resurrection, but even after Jesus was resurrected, he showed up in his body, his incarnate physical body. Some of you need to take that and you need to pay attention to that because you're not treating your body very well. It matters to God. We're routinely told by the storytellers in our culture to turn inward to our intrinsic desires and deepest longings and to self-identify as those feelings. Do you you hear me? To take the feeling, to take the desire, and to take that desire into yourself and to say, that's who I am. That's what our storytellers, our songwriters, our movie makers prevailingly want us to believe about our identity. And it is directly opposed to God as our creator and our identity provider, our namer. The enemy of our soul continues to do everything he possibly can to destroy the image of God in us because he hates it. He is jealous of it. And since he hates God, his goal is to trick, deceive, foil, and ruin the image of God in us. I call it identity disorientation. This is mapping and navigating my inner sense of self all by myself, only me. It's a recipe for disaster. If you had created yourself, sure. Last I checked, nobody in here created yourself. It is... It is necessary at the very fabric of our foundation that the one who created us be the one to name us, be the one to identify us. Modern Western culture believes that sexual identity is a result of some sort of self-expression or self-actualization that you and you alone must discover and live out. Our culture's thought leaders have been asserting that only you can know who you are. No one else can tell you who you are except you. This will ruin you. It's caused a massive identity crisis in our modern Western culture. Massive. It's not even scalable. This, it's, a, it's a cleverly disguised way of telling someone that their identity is only the sum total of their deepest desires and feelings, however damaging or wrong those may be. 
We're told we must live out, express, actualize those feelings to achieve true identity and satisfaction. And when they don't satisfy, well, then it's just time for us to become someone else. And we leave in the wake a trail of devastation and perversion as we move away from God and away from the image he created us to bear. So sexually, I want to bring this back. If I feel like my deepest desire has shifted to another woman other than my wife, I must pursue her, fulfilling my true self, being true to myself. That's a lot. But it's what we're taught and told. If one of my strongest urges is same-sex attraction, I must act on that feeling, making my sense of self LGBTQ+. It's got to be that that's my identity. No, no. No, no. It's a desire. It's a broken one. It's not your identity. If I am born biologically male, but I often feel female, then I must live that out. And I am transgender. No. If my deepest feelings and desires gravitate to hidden expressions of sexual fantasy and lust, then I should act on those. That is who I am. You all thought you were going to get off the hook, didn't you? (laughs) Heterosexuals. Never a moment does scripture let us off the hook for any other idea than God's idea of sexual expression and his identity of who we are. If my monogamous marriage has aged a bit and now I want another partner, I should invite a third person to join our sexual relationship and now I'm bisexual or polyamorous. It's my identity, it's who I am. Wait a minute. Wait just one stinking minute. God just gave us our identity and included included the embodied form of our sex. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, male and female, he created them. And if that's too binary for you, then I pray for you. Don't send me a mean email. Male and female. He goes on in the more detailed account of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 21 through 24. And he says, but for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last, oh, I said that when I got married. <laughs> then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now listen, listen, rib, we have blown the translation of rib. I mean, we have assaulted the translation of rib as the church. It does not mean physical rib. Did you know that? 40 times in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the sacred place on the side of the tabernacle. So what God is saying is I took from the most sacred place of Adam, who is sacred, and I made a creature 
equally valuable as Adam. This was revolutionary in a patriarchal society. This was shocking in that society. Two sacred beings. Here's what it means. That rib or tsela is a sacred architecture. And God as the reality. God is the reality. And since he is, we're the bodily image presenting that reality. This absolutely includes our sexual identity and how we express it. Here's the take home with this one. God made you a physical body. He made you a physical body. You don't just have a body, you are a body. The sex that you are is the sex. He wanted you to be as his image. That's true. He made us male and female and purposed that these should be the only two sacred representations of himself in image and likeness. The only two in all creation. Male and female. God joined one male with one female together in the union of marriage, including his presence. And I wish I could preach a marriage message, but I'm out of time. They, they represent a complete picture of himself on the earth. Male, female, the presence of Jesus is a complete picture of God on earth. That's incredible. No, see, thank you. That might be the first uh, yes I've gotten in another language. I want to talk just for a second about purpose and then we're going to wrap this up. Purpose, why am I? The image of God gives us our external reason for existence. Let's look back at Psalm 8, verse 6. Look what it says. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Look at it said we were a little bit lower than God. And it said everything else was under us. He's literally crafted the masterpiece of all creation. And he said, you want to talk about purpose? I am giving you the right to just like me go into all the world. And that is your purpose, to be like me, to show people like me. Because God is creative, you are creative. Because God is intelligent, you are intelligent. Because God is productive, you are productive. Because God cares for things, you are a caretaker. Because God is generative, you can be generative. Because God is the supreme ruler, you rule over things. Church, because God is a cultivator, you can cultivate things. Some of you with the green thumb, the rest can't. Because God is love, because God is love, you are to love others. And because God is purposeful, you are on purpose with a purpose. N nothing about this. Look at this phrase. Let us create. Let us create. Nothing about this declaration is accidental or unintentional. You are not an accident. 
Everything about that statement is a decision to design something for a reason. The statement is saturated with intention and purpose. So after all the pronunciations of goodness that he gave, over all the habitats and the denizens and the features, all of it, over creation and every ecosystem, he's spoken into being, he steps back, he looks, and there's a major missing piece. Nothing that bears his image, nothing that has his likeness. Let's make one and only one work of creation whose purpose it is to be my image and my likeness in the world. We're going to end on Psalm 139 with that in mind. Take a look at this psalm. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully set apart. Wonderful are your works. My my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I cannot imagine, church, a more purposeful description of God's handiwork to create the masterpiece of your life. That psalm sits over you and you can bellow it back to the enemy when he tells you you don't have a purpose. Here's the the take home. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Do you hear me? Some of you grew up believing you were a mistake. You are not a mistake. No matter what it was, what decisions it were that brought you into the world, God is the creator of life. And so he is the creator of your life and he is the giver of your purpose. Purposes, multiple. And he gets down in the dirt of our lives even after our rejection of him. And in the form, the fullness, the fullness of the spirit of God in the bodily form of Jesus Christ, Colossians tells us, in the fullness and perfection of that body, in his death comes our recreation, our repurpose, our re-imaging. He's laid it out for us. Our church is going to be a church, has been, is now, will continue to be a church that believes in your purpose. Not just my purpose, not just Jason's purpose or John's or Nate's or the tech team. Awesome purposes that God has given. Your purpose. 
I want you in places where people need to hear the story of Genesis. And I want you to get busy about figuring out how to tell it and show it, show and tell. We learned how to do that, I think, in kindergarten. Got to know what you're talking about, though. So, God, I just give you every single soul under the sound of my voice tonight, under the sound of your sound teaching. God, you are, and because you are, we are. Thank you for loving us like you have. Thank you for imprinting on us what you have. Thank you for calling us into purpose the way you have. Thank you for giving us an identity the way you have. Thank you for showing us that you love us even when we mess it up as badly as we do, all of us. And thank you that you made a way where there was no other way. We love you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'd be in this room for those that need to pray, that you would convict them, that they would come forward, that they would know that there is a person here who will love them the way you loved us. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you next week.